Okay. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 7. Last week I spoke a message that was probably very highly relevant to married couples. And I hope that those of you who are single found it relevant as well. Today we're going to talk probably more toward you singles. And I do think it will still be relevant to married folks. For those of you who are married, I hope you don't go think, well, today is just about single folks. I'm, not, I'm going to just tune out. Um, and I hope you do not come to church thinking, as I said before, you don't come to church thinking, oh, what do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? What you have to think is, what do we get out of it? What is it that we, what is God's will for the we? Many of you who are married have lots of single people in your life. And I hope that some of the principles I talk about, it'll challenge you. I know you, some of you are probably struggling in your marriage. And so these are some of the issues that we're going to talk about. Today I have a message called Looking for Love. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And then I'm going to, we're going to go ahead to chapter 31. So this is sort of like what not to do. And then chapter 31 gives you a hint of how to look for love the right way. Chapter 7, verse 1, this is the word of God. My son, as a wise father speaks to his son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call inside your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. This is what a father sees as he looks out and sees young men looking for love in all the wrong places. Passing along the street corner near her corner, street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. I don't always think you have to be a prostitute to be dressed wily, but very enticingly, let's put it that way. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifice, and today I've paid my vows, so now I've come out to meet you. In other words, sometimes she looks like she goes to church. That's interesting, right? To seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. She does smell nice. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Let me say it a little bit more modern way. I don't have a husband. That's in the future. So why don't you spend the night? That's a more modern way of putting it. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. That's rather dramatic. 
or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. It's like a trap. It's not like a trap. It is a trap. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, to death, going down to the chambers of death. Let's go to chapter 31. That's all scary and dark, okay? Chapter 31, this the whole chapter is beautiful. It's really, not the whole chapter, but much of the chapter is about what a, what a great wife looks like, what a great wife is like. Let's just go to verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, she is mar, more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Jump ahead to verse 26. This is, I love this part, verse 26, the description of, of a wise wife. I think this is a good description of my wife, actually. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness. Kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Yes, I do like to praise my wife. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. A great verse. Let's, uh, Let's pray for today's message. Lord Jesus, help me. Help me to say something which is both interesting and enticing, but also deeply wise, which points to you. We are a truly foolish society, a society completely, well, yeah, I'd say pretty completely stupid on this point. How to find real love, a real life partner, the soulmate in your kind of way, not in the, our kind of way. And I pray that this message would really help people. <laughs> Really help your people. Bless them and give them great, deep shalom in their life and in their marriages, in the marriages to come and the current marriages they have. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start with a story. Isn't that nice? Stories are always good. There's a woman, and she goes out, and she's looking for her man. And what does she find? A new store has opened. It's called the husband's store. Wouldn't that be nice, ladies? Wouldn't that be nice? Instead of having to go looking around at every idiot after another, instead you could go to the husband's store. Because our society likes to go to stores. That's what we like to shop for everything. There's a sign at the entrance. Here's what it says. You may visit the husband's store only once. There are six floors, and the value of the products increase on each successive floor. Isn't that cool? So when you're going up, you know the product's getting better. Okay. The shopper can choose any item from a particular floor. 
or go up to shop at the next floor. That's nice, isn't it? But, there's a very important but, she cannot go back down except to exit the building. Hmm. Okay. And then you catch, get, get, get how the store works? So, this woman goes into the store and on the first floor, the sign of the door, this is what it says. This is the first floor. Men who have good jobs. You know how you go to a mall you know, or you go into the department store and they tell you what's in the section. This one, men who have good jobs. That's nice, she thinks. Hmm. I want more than that. So she continues upward. Second floor. This is what it says. Men who have good jobs and love kids. Whoa, now we've raised the ante. Okay, all right, we've raised the ante. Wow, she's intrigued. So she goes, she continues to the third floor. And now here's what the sign says. Men who have good jobs, love kids, and are extremely handsome. <laughs> wow, she thinks. But she feels compelled ooh, to keep going. <laughs> Fourth floor, she goes up. Men who have good jobs, love kids, are extremely handsome. I mean, that, that's a lot right there, right? And, get this one, help equally with the housework. <laughs> now, now we know we're getting to fairy tale land, right? <laughs> okay. It can't get better than this, she says. But then a voice inside her asks, can it? Can it get better? So she goes up and reads the next sign. This is the fifth floor. I mean, we're, we're getting really high standards here now. Fifth, we're, we're, we're well past the Mercedes Benz, all right? <laughs> the fifth floor. Men who have good jobs, love kids, are extremely handsome, help equally with the housework, and have a great sense of humor. Now, having found what she's looking for, she's so tempted to stay. But something just propels her forward. She's got to get to that top floor. So she goes up. And here's what it says on the sixth floor. You are visitor 42,215,602. To this floor. There are no men on this floor. <laughs> this floor only exists to prove that women are impossible to please. Thank you for shopping at the husband's store. Here's the way to the exit. Now, this is the, the author of this book. She goes, to avoid gender bias, the store's owner opened a wife's store across the street. Same rules. The first floor, wives who love sex. Whoa. Second floor, wives who love sex and are kind. Pretty good. I guess there are women who love sex, but they're not very kind, okay? The third floor, wives who love sex are kind and they like sports. <laughs> wow, that's a, like a, a really small number, right? The fourth, fifth, and sixth floors have never been visited. <laughs> okay. 
For those of you who are interested in, this is, that's the beginning of a book called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough by Lori Gottlieb. Terrific book. Not, she's not a Christian. I think she's actually secular Jewish. And she wrote this book because she's, I think, in her 40s now. And she's gone through all these men. And she has a baby. And she's going, how the heck do you do this? And she realized she's totally stupid about how to do this. And many of you people are probably quite like her, men and women. Just want to help. Now, that, that's a funny way to start. I think a lot of you can relate to that intro. It gives you a little peek as to our hearts. Why are you laughing so much? You're laughing so much because you all get it. You get the joke, right? And you all get it because you all seek the husband or the wife in the way this is talking about. So, three parts to my message today. Part one. Ooh, let me get my better version of my printed notes, okay? Part one, I'm going to call what is wrong with our approach, okay? What's wrong? Why is it so hard? What's wrong with our pursuit of love? Part two, the Proverbs presentation. Give me a little blitz through through some of the ways that the Proverbs presents it. And then part three, I'm going to call what real love is like. Okay? What real love is like. Number one, what's wrong with our pursuit of love? Let me give you some insights out of one of the wisest pastors in our country right now, a guy named Timothy Keller. He, with his wife, wrote this great little book called The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. We are in the wisdom series, are we not? And one of the first things he points out is, I don't know if many of you, especially who are young, you don't understand that every generation morphs the way they do this. They figure out, they figure out every, most people, they need somebody. They need somebody. Most, almost every single society, not just every, every single society, has fig, doesn't understand the way you do this is marriage. And... In previous generations, prior to the Enlightenment, prior to all the scientific revolution, all that, the society was very Christian in the way it looked at marriage. Catholics tended to look at marriage primarily more like a sacrament that pointed to, pointed to the reality of God. Protestants tended to, to look at marriage as a way to bless, as a as a deep as a deep contribution to the common good, and both of them looked at marriage as Within this way, the next generation flourishes. It's a really big question. Our society is breaking marriage. I won't get into that subject. We are breaking marriage in a very deep way. We are, we are poisoning our next generation, just like the previous generation poisoned us. So it really goes actually go back to the boomers. The boomers poison the Xers, and the Xers are poisoning the millennials, and the millennials get to probably poison the next generation. But... What happened was, so when they were very Christian, by the way, just a quick point about that, the Catholics and the Protestants, they're both right. They should just learn from each other because the Bible teaches all of it. It is sacramental look at the reality of God and a deep point of common good, and of course they're both right about children. But during that period, it was a very duty-oriented society. So here's the way Keller puts it. Older cultures taught their members to find their meaning in duty. Our society hates duty. By embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully, 
So what that meant was the meaning of life came to be seen as a fruit. The, came, the meaning of life came to be fruit of fulfilling your duty. So, in other words, you're part of something bigger. And marriage, then, is to find yourself in something bigger than yourself. And as you fulfill the role of husband or wife, you'll become fulfilled within that duty. The duty is actually a means toward fulfillment. That's how the society looked at it back then. Now, after the Enlightenment, the meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of freedom of the individual to choose. It shifted. And so, what fulfills people is what fulfills him or her personally. It's not about self-denial, but instead, we don't give up we don't give up our freedom. What we have to do is we have to find someone who fulfills me. We don't get married now to fulfill our families and our societies. We get married now to fulfill myself. There isn't some responsibility to God and to our society and to other people. It's just about me. That's the way the society has shifted. And that is that that spirit has propelled itself deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger such that almost everybody in our society, you do this, it's like the water that you drink. This is the river that you swim in. If you're a fish, the self-fulfillment, understanding of marriage and love-seeking, this is absolutely how you think and feel. Absolutely. All of us. I don't think, there's not one person who's immune to this. Okay? And here's how he puts it. Marriage used to be about the us, but now it's about the me. But ironically, the new view of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses in a way that traditional understandings never did. And it leaves us desperately trapped between unrealistic longings and fears of marriage. Now, what does he mean by that? Unrealistic longings and fears. What he means is, most people, you don't want just a good enough person most of you don't want to shop on floor one, two, or three. You got to get up and find out what's there up in floor four, five, and six in the husband or the wife's store. I don't quite believe, actually, that most husbands would not, most men would not get up to levels four, five, and six. It's not true. Right? Most of us are always going up there to find out this, this, and what we call it is we're looking for the soulmate. That's what the term we use today, right? But the soulmate is defined wholly by this self-fulfillment ethic. This self-fulfillment, this thing to fulfill my special, my special and unique me. There's this only one special me out there and I'm so deep and complex. Nobody can get me. And there is this one special person out there. And they're probably not on the sixth floor. They're on the seventh, eighth or ninth floor, right? Come on. Because... If it was the sixth floor, there'd be, there'd be lot, just a lot of choices. But you don't even think there's a lot of choices. There's some special person out there. It's got to be for you. And if you met this person, what would it be like? If you met this person, and I think this is true for both men and for women, this person would be compatible. What does compatibility mean? Well, today we want a spouse who is fun, Intellectually stimulating, at least some of you, a lot of you want intellectually stimulating. Sexually attractive, just about every man wants that. Right? Common interests, and on top of it all, is supportive of my personal growth 
and the way that I am living now. These are the things that we want. And so, if your desire is for a spouse who will not demand a lot of change from you, notice this person never going to ask you to change because they just fit you. They're perfect for you. Why should they have to ask you to change? Then you're looking for a spouse who is almost completely pulled together, someone very low maintenance, without much in the way of personal problems. So that means that they're angry or depressed or sad. You notice all those people have to fake it when they go on dates. I'm not a sad person. I don't have a temper. <laughs> I don't have bad habits. I have to hide them. Dating. Dating. You know what dating mostly is? It's total fakery. Dating is a nice way of saying, let's be fake. Because everybody's looking for this, including me. I'm looking for this. And so I've got to pretend like I'm this. You're looking for someone who will not require or demand significant change. You are searching, therefore, for an ideal person. Happy, healthy, interesting, content with life. Never before in history has there been a society with people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse. Extreme optimism. Guess what it produces? You're living in fantasy land. And therefore, when you go out into reality land, you start getting really pessimistic and fearful. You're with somebody. Maybe you're dating somebody. Maybe you have a good friend. That friend is probably a very good husband or wife material for you. But you're going, this person's only floor three material. If I marry this person, you have fears. Fears that I would miss out on my soulmate or I'm selling myself short or I won't get the best life for me. And how the heck do you know what the heck is the best life for you? You don't know. That's how you think. So extreme optimism also produces pessimism. And that pessimism produces fear. And that fear produces fear of commitment, fear of dating, fear of putting yourself out there, fear of meeting people. So that's what's going on with all you millennials and still some X-generation folks. X, there's X-generation folks hitting their 40s and they, they're, they're running this fear issue. There's millennials in their 20s and early 30s. This is the problem. This is what's wrong. Okay. So, he quotes. He quotes a theologian that I respect. His name is Stanley Hauerwas. And here's the way Stanley Hauerwas puts it. According to the Christian answer from Stanley Hauerwas, there are actually no two people that are compatible like this. That's a fantasy. It's some stupid thing that's in our mind that we want to believe in that's not real. Here's how he puts it. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, which is necessary for us to become whole and happy. This is the only way I can be whole and happy. I've got to find my soulmate, which is just perfect for me, and they'll just make everything happy for me. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we'll find that right person. This moral assumption, that's what it is, it's a moral assumption, overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that we always marry the wrong person, according to the standard. Go and talk to all the married people that you know. If they're really honest with you, they, they might not say this in front of their spouse. Um, yeah, they sure felt like the wrong person. 
after a year, two, five years into the marriage. Here, here's what Howard Walsh goes on to say. We never know whom to marry. We just think we do. You just think you do. Let me repeat that. You just think you know. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. By the way, did I say you don't know? You don't know. <laughs> or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. So you thought you married the right person and they'll become the wrong person. <laughs> For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. This is what Keller says. Harwell shows that the quest for a perfectly compatible soulmate is an impossibility. Marriage brings you into more intense proximity to another human being than any other relationship can. It's absolutely true. 16 years of experience. Absolutely true. Hmm. Therefore, the moment you marry someone, you and your spouse begin to change in profound ways and you can't know ahead of time what those changes will be. So you don't know, you can't know who your spouse will actually be in the future until you get there. It's get into the journey. That's how it actually works. So stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to be God and have omnipotent, um, omnipotent, omniscient wisdom of how you do this thing. You can't, you can't, you can't. Even secular, godless Lori Gottlieb, her name literally means the love of God, but she's secular and godless. She's figuring it out. You can't do this. That's what this book is about. So I'll post links to this on the website this week. That's what's wrong with us, okay? I just gave you a very sophisticated way of saying you are deluded by self-fulfillment. And as long as you're on this drug, you're going to be dumb, dumb, dumb. That's how it works. And many of you are married. Some of you are married. You're like, okay, I, I already passed this part. Some of you are married. You know why your marriages are in trouble? Because you're still on the drug. Because you're still in the delusion. You're still looking at your spouse saying, hey, be compatible, be compatible. You think... If they get fixed, everything will, be work, will work out just fine. You're wrong. The one who needs fixing is you. Because you believe in a lie. You believe in a big, fat, humongous lie. And you need to repent. You need to get a big, some wisdom truth in you. And when you change, the marriage will get better. I promise you. I, I learned this too. <laughs> First seven years... I believed all this. So I believed all this till I got married. Then I believed all this for the first seven years of my marriage. And then after I repented of this, wow, actually marriage started getting a lot better. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing how you believe in God, follow what he says, and things start to work. It's incredible. Okay. Part two of my message, the Proverbs picture. I read to you Proverbs 7, and essentially it's saying, don't go sleep with her. She's the bad woman. It says she's a prostitute or she's an adulteress. Today we have a different term. It's called fornication. I don't know if some of you don't even know that word. Some of you are like, that's a bad F word. Okay, it's a bad F word. Fornication means to have sex before you're married. So we're not adulterers. We're fornicators. We're fornicators and adulterers in America. Right? And in America, fornication is considered utterly okay because you've got to find out if you are physically compatible, right? 
And a lot of couples today, what they do is they try it out. They're so afraid to commit because you've got to be my soulmate. So let's try it out first. It's like this. You go to the store. You have a 30-day return policy. <laughs> and so living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, that is, you know what that is? That's a return policy. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. It doesn't work. As long as you think this is what it's about. Actually, uh, this has been studied. This has been studied like crazy. All the people who live with their girlfriend or boyfriend, and then they get married, those marriages fail at a much higher rate than the people who don't do it that way. See, the Bible's wiser. So even if you don't believe in God, and you don't think it's sin, and all this other stuff that these Christians like to talk about, I just want to hook you with a little bit of wisdom. Chapter 7 is not just talking about the adulteress, because... In the, according to the Bible's perspective, if you have sex before you're married, you're an adulterer. You're just an adulterer before the fact. And that, the vast majority of people get married. So you're an adulterer. So chapter 7 is, don't just go look for the person who's charming. Chapter 7 is a picture of a person looking for their soulmate. Not just a person who just wants to have sex. It's a person who's lonely, looking for their soulmate. Chapter 7 is, is a big, fat rebuke to the modern self-fulfillment ethic. Let me just give you some, some other things from... There's a, if you have been going through Proverbs this month, this, I mean, this month, this summer with us, some of you have noticed in, in our community group discussions, there's a lot about dating and sex, or a lot about how to avoid the wrong woman, find the right woman. It's incredible. One of the reasons this is the case is if you want to have a wise and deep life, one of the most important decisions in your life is who you marry, how you marry, how you pursue that question. After following Jesus, finding the real God and real Savior, who you marry probably is the single greatest factor that will set the course of your life. That includes, by the way, if you get divorced. For those people who have been divorced, you probably know that's true. So here's some of the things that Proverbs says. Chapter 11, verse, let me just blitz through some of this. Chapter 11, verse 16. A gracious woman gets honor. Not a hot woman gets honor. Not a woman that likes, has a good sense of humor and likes sports. <laughs> a gracious woman gets honor. How about this one? I love this verse. I just, I should memorize this verse. Like, just chapter 11, verse 22, for those of you who want to memorize this verse. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. <laughs> like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. In other words, why would you want to stick a gold ring in a pig? Beauty on a woman with no discretion is like putting a ring on a pig. That's oh, pretty insulting, ladies. But that's... The Bible speaking very bluntly. She can be hot. Does she have discretion? Does she have discretion? Chapter 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. It's great if she's hot, isn't it? But how about if she brings you shame? I think this applies perfectly well to husbands, too. How about if he brings you shame? I've talked to lots of women whose husband is a deadbeat. 
who never cares for the kids, who hates to work, who spews, spews disrespect and disdain on things that are honorable and beautiful and good, and of course, mostly on God. Almost all those women find it very painful, especially after being married to him for year in and year out. Think about this. Please think about this. 14 verse 1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Women got to build a house. You know that? I'm not talking about, I mean, literally they, husbands, when you get married, dudes, you got you young guys, you have a girlfriend and she comes over to your house and then wants to fix up your house, let her. <laughs> let her. Wives, the house is not your house, guys. It's her house. <laughs> It's her house. But you know what? She, she's not building a house. She's building a home. Go to a guy's house. But if you go to a guy's house, you ever go to a, a bunch of four, four dudes live in the house? The house is ugly and smelly. You don't even want to go in the bathroom. And, oh, it's like, oh, gosh. You never you know what the heck is alive inside that bathroom. <laughs> but you go into a married a couple's house where the wife is a good wife. You notice there's a feel. There's a feel. Some of the wives have very kind of artistic tastes and they put like art on the walls and they have a very specific architectural sense and there's a certain beauty to the house. But some wives don't, aren't, you know, they don't, they haven't watched, um, they haven't watched uh, some of these TV shows and they're not very good at these things. But the house works a certain way. The children know that they get to play here and that's their place of warmth and freedom. The, the furniture may not be fancy, but there's a sense that all the people in this house are loved. But the woman does, doesn't have wisdom with her very own hands. She could tear all that down. She could tear that down. Tear it down with her lips, with her mouth, with her heart. Words, wisdom. 14 verse 1. 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. A lot of people don't think marriage is good today. It's very good if you do it according to the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 14. Health, house, and wealth are inherited from fathers. Actually, we don't even do it that way anymore. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. I'll say that in a lot of ways. The Lord will help you find her or him. The Lord will help you because she can become... Sometimes wives don't start off as prudent. So it's not like you have to go find her. Sometimes she starts off as foolish, but she becomes prudent. It's from the Lord. Sometimes your husband is an idiot at the beginning. But it's from the Lord that he becomes a real man. It's from the Lord. 21 verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. I think it's such, such an important verse. 21.9 says the same thing. It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. I think the, the Holy Spirit thought that verse was so good, He repeats it. Exact same words. 25 verse 24. 21.9, 25.4. It is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Men and women... Wives, listen to this. You want, this is 
I know the book is geared toward men because the men have to become heads, which I talked about last week, so they can find a wife. But this book also teaches you how to become that wife. If you want a wise man to look for you to be this kind of woman, then you need to first want to become this kind of woman. It's from the Lord. Chapter 31. Let me just, I, I just want to say a few things. Verse chapter 10. Ah, I'm not there. Let me get there. Chapter 31, verse 10 through 12. An excellent wife who can find. You know what it's saying? It's not easy. It's not easy to find a good spouse. We all know that. Even if you don't have self-fulfillment, I think it's still not easy. But listen to what it says. She is far more precious than jewels. Do you really believe that? A lot of people today, I, I think they, they don't really believe that. You know how I know that? People today, they don't look for a spouse first. You know what they look for first? Their education and their career. Why do they look for their career first? Because they want money. First, if I have money, then my life will be set. But the Bible says, an excellent wife, she is more precious than jewels. All you young guys, let me say this to you. As soon as you get toward college, start looking for a really good wife. All you young ladies, start thinking, I've got to get into grad school. No, 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 no. I'm going to tell you the advice I'm going to give all my daughters. As long as you're on this roof, no dudes. <laughs> but you go off to college. You go off to college. Start looking for a good man. It's more important than your major. It is way more important than your major. Start being a godly woman. I'm serious. That's what I'm going to say to my, my daughters. I mean, it's just, it's just a serious side fact of life. If you go off to grad school, you go run off to all your career, 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 and then you're going to be 32 years old, guys ain't going to be looking at you like they're going to be looking at you when you're 22. Find a winner. Find a winner. Look for a winner. Pray for a winner. One who is godly, who has wisdom. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. What an incredible thing. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And listen to how it says, verse 26. She opens her mouth, wisdom flows out of it. And there is a teaching on her tongue. It's kindness. Ladies, if you're rude to your husband, please rethink. Girls, if you're rude to the men in your life, if he reads this verse, he might start thinking, hmm, she might not be the wife I want. She looks way well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Let me praise my wife now. Let me give you a little advice. So I'm give you some, I just, there's so much that could be said about this, but let me give you just one good piece of advice, all you singles. I got this from my pastor when I was single. It's really interesting. I used to fall asleep in his sermons all the time. <laughs> this one Sunday, he said this. I happened to be awake. 
God was gracious. And I remembered this. I was like, wow, that's actually really helpful. Here's what he said. Guys, you want to find a good wife? There's some nice women in this church. But don't look for the one who's necessarily the prettiest or the one who you think is cool or has got the coolest sense of humor or strokes your ego. There are some women who love the Lord. They do things to serve Him. They do the things that nobody praises. They're usually quiet in the corner. The things that nobody else wants to do. They'll do those things. They don't do it expecting thanks, nor, or honor, or, or to say, hey, you're so great, praise. They do it because they just love God. They want to do this for God. If you see that in a girl, that's, wow. Now you, can, you should say, wow. I remembered that. This is before I met Grace. And then a couple years later, I met this nice girl, and we had some compatibility, <laughs> some compatibility, and that's, if you get some compatibility, that's about all you can ask for, by the way. But I also noticed this about her. I noticed that she was on praise team. She was not one of the singers up front that get all the glory. Oh, you're such a great singer. You're such a great guitar player. She wasn't up there. You know what she used to do? So this was the old, bad old primitive days when we didn't have this PowerPoint special doodads, okay, where these, these machines were too expensive. We had this really primitive device called an overhead projector. And an overhead projector required these transparent pieces of plastic by which you would put the lyrics of the songs and someone would have to flip these songs. And someone would have to have this big old box of transparent lyrics and someone would have to organize that junk as work. And my wife loved praising the Lord. But she said, gosh, I can't sing, so I can't inflict that on anybody up at the front. But she wanted to praise the Lord and serve in the praising of the Lord. So guess who did that work? Organizing the transparencies and flipping the transparencies. At our church, praise team would have to get to church three hours before service began. They would sit together and pray with one another and pray for one another. Then they would practice. My wife would get up very early to go do that. Never complain. Did it very faithfully every week. I took a look at Grace and said, wow, that's the girl for me. Because I remembered the one Sunday I happened to be awake, a good piece of wisdom from my pastor. Let me offer that to you. Look for a friend, not the person who gives you all the hotties. You got a godly friend, male or female. You got a godly friend. You love their faith. You admire the way they pursue God. You admire the way they want to repent of their sins. When you talk to them, they understand your sins. You feel safe to understand their sins. And they show even a little bit of this type of heart. You got a winner there. Stop going to the fourth, fifth, and sixth floor. You got a winner there. That's my advice to you. Let me go to part three of my message. How true love actually looks. I just gave you a lot of good advice. But what you need is a lot of grace. 
Grace comes from Jesus. The way real, true love works like this. So I just told you there's nobody compatible out there. I just told you Stan Harawas told you and he's a wiser man than me. You're going to marry Miss Right or Mr. Right and then he's going to turn into Mr. Wrong or Miss Wrong. That's what happens. He may turn to Miss Very, Mr. Very Wrong. He's not kind of wrong. He's like you're super wrong. That's why we fight about this all the time. You're so wrong. Being, the way true love works is this. You see, this is an incredible thing. Many of you don't think, I know some of you heard this thing, Jesus is the real treasure. The pastor always keeps saying, Jesus is the real treasure. Gosh, he's a broken record about Jesus is the real treasure. Because Jesus is the real lover. Isn't that really weird? Jesus teaches you. Jesus shows you. Jesus gives you power to show you real love. Romantic, marital, lifelong love. And how do you do it? So he looked at this woman called the church and he said, good body shape, sexual compatibility, good sense of humor, and like sports. That's what he said, right? Of course not. He said, selfish, vain, filled with self-fulfillment, stupidity. Selfish. Oh, yeah, selfish. <laughs> not good looking. Thinks she's misright, but is seriously badly, badly wrong, wrong, wrong. But I'll love her. I'll love her to the cross. That's true love. That's what it looks like. If you will say, I want to love someone like that, don't you all want to be loved like that? If you want your spouse to love you, even something like that, you know how it can actually happen. I'm telling you, it can happen that your spouse could possibly love you even a little bit like the way Jesus loves his spouse. You know what happens? If you first will say, I want to love like you, Jesus. If you will love your spouse even a little bit like Jesus loves, because he has true love. If you will love with true love, even a little bit, your spouse, it will be so powerful, your spouse will begin to love you back with true love. That's how it works. But in order for you, so the way it works is, you change in Christ your lover will change into something beautiful and become more and more right. But the only way you can even begin to love someone that way is a deep security and a deep love is in you. Because you're going to get married or you're going to date someone and they're going to tell you what's wrong with you. And they're going to tell you and they're going to tell you and they're going to tell you. Husbands and wives, the fight that you have repeatedly, you might want to take note Wait a second. She said this to me 20 times. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe there's something there. You haven't listened because you don't want to hear it. Because you don't have enough deep love and security. But if you go to Christ and accept and really believe that He loves you like this, then you can actually begin to hear what your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend is saying to you when they tell you what's wrong with you. And you'll begin to change. 
and love them back the way they need. And you'll have a great life. Just to close on this with a personal note. I've been married almost 16 years. I did seven years of the stupid way. We sat in marital counseling. And I realized for the first time, I never really thought my wife was being changed by God because I got to fix her. What I didn't, what I've heard there was, I need to be fixed. I think that was a start. Now we've been going almost nine years. And I'll say, I'll brag on my wife. It is absolutely true what it says. She is a blessing to you. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She does me good all the days of my life. And you will be so glad if you marry like that. It's from God. It's from the real lover, Jesus. Let's pray and go to God's table. Lord, we go to your table now full of folly. And we pray now that we would eat wisdom. We go to the table full of selfishness. We pray that you would turn us, put the seed of being true lovers in our hearts. We pray that this church would abound with beautiful, beautiful marriages full of wisdom. So beautiful, so compelling that many will figure out, what the heck do they know over there? Because it's not working in my relationship. Many, many Lori Gottliebs will come to this church and go, oh my goodness, what are your tricks? We got no tricks. We got Jesus and His wisdom and His grace. We eat this grace now. Will you change us? In Jesus' name. Amen.